Let's pray together. Our Father, now as we come to your word, we're ready to go. We've uh, sang the songs. Our hearts and minds are so filled with truth. And Lord, we, we stand today, as we do every Sunday, on the resurrected Lord Jesus. Lord, uh, even as I pray, my, my mind is, is thoughtful of, of more than one family suffering the loss of a loved one, even recently. And Lord, what better place to be and what better thing to be reminded of than your resurrection. Lord, the, the joy of today, the f- family in town, the fellowship, the being together, Lord, it's all because of who Jesus is. This church exists because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that through Jesus we have the forgiveness of sins. May you be glorified today as we uh, open your word now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And maybe just the word, if any kids are going out to the fours and fives, they could be dismissed at this time. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a video circulating of a pastor who, on Easter, wanted to grab the attention of his listeners and emphasize the fact that everybody was one day going to die. And so on the, on the stage next to him, he had, a, he had a coffin standing upright. And he walked over to the coffin, and with one, one foot in the coffin, he kept emphasizing to the people, that you are going to die. One day, everybody is going to die. And to further, to further emphasize the fact, he, he stepped into the coffin, pulled the door closed, and it fell over. And he fell out. The resurrection doesn't need an attention grabber, to which you could say, well, if, or you could say, <laughs> if that guy did it as an attention grabber, and you're telling the story of the way he did an attention grabber, aren't you giving us an attention grabber to, about the resurrection? That'll catch up soon. Um, so let's get to the attention grabber. John chapter 20, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're going to read most of the chapter this morning and then walk our way through it. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, this is John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths laying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went right into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up, folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. 
He said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. I'll take him myself. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the story of a certified, executed dead man walking out of the tomb. It sounds too unbelievable to be true, to be true and over the years, many theorists have come up with ideas on how to explain away the resurrection, how to discredit, discredit it. Perhaps the women went to the wrong tomb. This isn't likely at all. The gospel writers tell us that several women followed Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. He's the one who took the body to the tomb. They followed closely so that they would know exactly where Jesus was. The women knew on the way to the tomb, uh, another account tells us that they were concerned about how they were going to get the stone rolled away. So they knew, that, they knew exactly where it was. They knew there was a large stone that they would have to roll away. Well, perhaps Jesus didn't really die, some would say, but he was just unconscious. unconscious. He, was just, he just kind of swooned into the grave. Well, this is just pure folly. It was proved by many witnesses, including those who hated him, the Roman soldiers, that Jesus was dead. Well, perhaps the disciples were hallucinating, as that can happen. Somebody undergoing severe trauma or somebody going through some traumatic moment, they, could, they, they can hallucinate and their mind can play tricks on them. But again, this is, this is just folly because we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, that Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. 
And it is just medically impossible for 500 people at the exact same time, at the exact same moment, have the exact same hallucination. That's not how hallucinations work. Well, perhaps the body was stolen, and that's something the religious leaders wondered. Or the, the lie they told others when they found out what had happened. But if you think about it, his disciples would not have been able to steal the body. It was guarded by Roman soldiers. We learned that in another account. The tomb had an official Roman seal over it. So the disciples, as a matter of fact, and then we, in, this, in this they're hiding in fear because Jesus' body is gone. And we're going to talk about later is they're probably, they probably know they're going to get blamed for it. The religious leaders certainly wouldn't have stolen the body. The last thing they wanted anybody to believe was that Jesus actually did what he said he was going to do and had raised from the dead. There's only one logical conclusion when it comes to the resurrection, and that is Jesus kept his promise and rose from the dead. And Jesus' followers would slowly begin to realize. It was a slow recognition. They finally, it's true, it's true. And they saw him, and he was alive. And oh, what a change it made. We see four changes that Jesus wants to make in us in this passage as a result of the resurrection. The darkest day led to the dawning of a new day. And a dawning of a new day can come for you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Maybe you don't know him. Maybe, maybe you would turn away from the empty tomb in, in laughter and in mockery and in disbelief. Or maybe you do know Jesus as your savior. Life is tough, there's sorrow, there's hurt, there's heartache, there's sin, there's addiction, there's whatever. A new day can dawn for you through Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Jesus can change you. And that's what the Apostle John, as he writes this account for us, that's what he's trying to get us to see. There's four changes that Jesus makes and he wants to make in you. And the first one is going from captive to conqueror. From captive to conqueror. Now this happens on the first day of the week. The resurrection of Jesus Christ would change the course of history. For more than 2,000 years, the story of Christ Jesus has gone throughout the world, and people who are dead in their trespasses and sins have received forgiveness and eternal life. And every single Sunday, all over the world, millions and millions and millions of believers in Jesus Christ meet to worship the, the crucified and risen Savior We worshipped the resurrected Savior last week. We worshipped the resurrected Savior the week before that, and next week, guess what we're going to worship? The resurrected Savior every single week. We're not going to have breakfast every week, uh, but we are going to worship the resurrected Savior. Mary is the first one to the tomb, as we see in our passage. And uh, and, uh, if you go back in Luke chapter 8, we won't turn there, but Mary first met Jesus when she was being tormented by seven seven demons that had entered her body. Jesus comes and he casts out these seven tormenting demons. And she became a fervent and faithful follower of his all through his ministry. Go to Luke chapter 19, even just the previous chapter. She was one of the women who was with his mother Mary standing at the front of the crowd right in front of the crucified Jesus as he was dying. She was there all along. And she she comes to the tomb early on Sunday morning with spices for the lifeless body of Jesus Christ. 
Now, she came early on this Sunday morning, and that was a dangerous thing to do. Roman soldiers would be on the lookout for anybody associated with somebody who had been crucified. And so to be associated with Jesus, even after his death, was not safe. And that's why we see later the disciples, they were locked for the fear of the Jews, but also for for fear of the Romans, knowing that they were probably next. But Mary comes. Her own life could be in danger, but upon seeing the stone rolled away, remember she runs and she tells the disciples. She assumes that some robbers had stolen the, gra- uh, stolen the body. If you just add this all together, the crucifixion crushed their hearts. And now to see the body stolen just, just poured salt on the wound, just added insult to injury. So Peter and John, when they hear the, the news from Mary, they run to the tomb. Now John beats Peter to the tomb. John is the one who wrote this account. Peter and John both take off. Peter's slower, John is faster, and John gets there first. John stops outside and he looks in. Peter, impulsive as always, just runs right in. And the body was gone. What they found shocked them. Not only was the body gone, but the clothes cloths that Jesus was wrapped in, they were left behind. Now I want to I point to you a difference in what Peter and John saw. You say, well wait, then did they see the same thing? They did, but it had a different effect on each of them. Now when it says that Peter went in and he saw, in verse 6 where it says he saw the linen cloths lying there. The Greek word there for, for saw is theoreo. It's where we'd get our word theory. It's, it's a word used when Jesus was watching. Remember when Jesus was watching in the temple, people put in their offering into the, into, uh, the little offering plate there. It's the same word. He was just kind of, he was standing back and observing. That's the word used here. Peter saw. He observed it. There's a different word that's used in verse 8. When it says, then the other disciple, when he reached the tomb first, he also went in and he saw. It's a different word. And it means to see it like it is. It means to see and believe. To see the reality. To understand what's going on. It was more than just an observation. It was more than just taking in facts John saw it and he said, it's true, he's alive. Peter saw it and he was still thinking it over. Still wasn't sure, still processing the information. But John knew exactly what had happened when he saw it. Jesus was alive. And it says here they didn't didn't understand scripture. Up until this point, John, Peter, the other disciples, no one understood scripture that he must rise from the dead probably referring to Psalm 16.10, and even when you take the Old Testament as a whole, you know, this idea that the chosen one would come, and that he would suffer and he would die, but that same chosen one would rule as the Messiah. You put all those together, and you have to, you know, you put the pieces of the puzzle together, and this means that the Messiah, though he would die, yet he would come back from the dead. Notice it says here, as the scripture, that, that, that he must Rise from the dead. He must. And this is why Jesus can change you from a captive to a conqueror. Why is, why, why is it that he must rise from the dead? 
Scripture tells us a couple things. One, if there was no resurrection, that would mean that God did not accept Jesus' sacrifice. Romans 4.25 says Jesus was raised for our justification. He was raised so that we could have a perfect standing before God. He was raised so that we could be clothed with his righteousness. If Jesus was not raised, it would be God saying that wasn't enough. The sacrifice of the perfect son of God wasn't enough. God would have needed more. He would have needed something more. The penalty for our sins would not have been paid for. The wrath would still remain on us. Our standing before God depends on the resurrection. Which is why this is a, this is a, this is a rise or fall sort of thing. To disbelieve the resurrection is to be separated from God and headed for an eternity in hell. Our standing before God depends on the resurrection. And we'll talk more on that here in a little bit. But also, if there is no resurrection, there would be no hope of being set free from our bondage to sin and death. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, chapter 15, verses 16 and 17. Where he says, for if the dead are not raised, well then not even Christ has been raised. You could flip that around and say, if Christ hasn't been raised, then when you die, you're not going anywhere. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. There would be no hope of being set free from our bondage to sin and death. Christianity is stripped of all hope. Christianity is futile if Jesus is still in the tomb. There's just no reason for us to meet. There's no reason why we shouldn't turn this into a country club or something else. It just doesn't make any sense. If we're not worshiping a risen Savior, then our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. And there is no hope for anybody before God. But he's not. But he's not. Romans 10, 9 again says, if you believe in heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If you believe that he raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. To disbelieve the resurrection is to be outside of Christ. Jesus, through his resurrection, can change you from a captive to your own sin and your own death, eternal death, separation from God. He can change you into a, from a captive into a conqueror. Where Romans would say we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That because Jesus has victory over the tomb, so can you and me. How can you experience this change? Like Romans 10.9 says, believe that Jesus is Lord. He died for your sins and rose again. Jesus says in John chapter 8, he says, I told you that you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins unless you believe that I am he you will die in your sins. Through Jesus, the the curse of sin is gone. The sting of death is gone. The victory of hell is gone. And we go from captive to conqueror. But there's another change that Jesus wants to make in your life. And that's from sorrow to comfort. Here in verses 11 through 18, we, we get a little bit more about just kind of focusing on Mary here. From sorrow to comfort. Mary loved Jesus. She loved Jesus with all her heart. Now, Peter and John, remember, they ran, they ran to the tomb. So Mary comes back, she tells them what happened, and they just run. Mary probably didn't run behind them, so they run ahead. They get to the tomb, they have their little encounter with the empty tomb, and they leave. Well, by the time Mary comes back, they're probably already gone. And so she's just here by herself. And she lingers at the tomb. And she's weeping. 
uncontrollable weeping and mourning. The man who had set her free from seven tormenting demons was dead. The man she followed all the way literally to the foot of his cross was gone. And she mourned and she mourned and she mourned and tears after tear after tear came from her eyes. But with Christ, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Mary peers into the tomb and she sees two angels. We don't know if she really knew these were angels, but she may have known. But she has just this normal conversation with them. And we can't miss the picture of the mercy seat from the Old Testament. You have one angel sitting on one side and, and another angel uh, uh, on the top. If you remember in the Old Testament, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Holy of Holies, they had the, the ark, and it had, it had the, the mercy seat with the two, uh, the two graven cherubim with their wings spread over the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle blood. And it was a way to, uh, for the forgiveness of the sins of the people and to cleanse the tabernacle. And it's as if Mary is standing. And the, remember, the high priest was the only one who could go in there. And he could go, only go in once a year. And it's, just, it's as if Mary, this woman at one time so tormented by demons, whose life was just a complete wreck and hopeless and going nowhere. It's as if, as if she was standing where only the high priest could ever stand. In the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 19 through 22 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. There's that sprinkling when they would sprinkle the blood. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus is saying there's a new mercy seat. And all who have Christ have full access to God. Well, as much comfort as that may bring you, this conversation brought no comfort to Mary. It did not calm her. It did not dry her tears. Her love for Jesus was so deep, and her mind was so convinced that, and even the angels, their question, it was almost a gentle rebuke. Woman, why are you weeping? As if to say, what, why would you weep right now? I mean, don't you know? Don't you, don't you understand what's going on? She was so convinced, so convinced that somebody had stolen the body of Jesus, and she was sorrowful, and so she just turns from the empty tomb. And she's weeping, and she's sorrowful. And she meets a man. And this man asks her the same question. Woman. And we might use woman uh, in negative ways, but this was, a, this was, a, this was a, a term of endearment. Woman, why are you weeping? She was so sorrowful, she wasn't seeing or thinking clearly. And, and she's, she, 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 she tells the man, if you've taken the body, you tell me where it is. I'll go carry it back myself. You can just see, you know, the flame in her heart. You tell me where it is. I'll carry the body if I have to. You let me know where my Jesus is. Now, the man she was talking to did move the body of Jesus. Just not in the way she was thinking. 
Jesus ended all her sorrow and all her confusion with one word, Mary. Reminds us of John chapter 10, doesn't it? When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Ah, she heard it. She heard that same Mary that she had heard before. And she turns, it's the voice of, and she, she hears this voice of tenderness, of assurance, and of love. And she turns, and there he is. It's Jesus. And so naturally, we get, you know, we don't, it doesn't tell us this in John, but obviously by Jesus' words, we know what happens. Mary falls down and, and wraps up. And she clings to her feet and holds on with all of her might. She wasn't going to lose him again. She had finally found him, and she wasn't going to let him go. Oh, that we had a church filled with people who refused to loosen their grip on Christ. Oh, that my heart, my own heart, wouldn't be so stubborn and fickle that it would ever loosen its grip on Christ. Oh, that we would all be like Mary, who falls at the feet of Jesus and holds on to him and him alone forever. We know what Jesus tells her. Jesus tells her, you can't hold on to me forever. He tells her that this isn't a permanent thing, but he's also kind of reassuring her. You know, he he was going to be on the earth for 40 days. So Mary would see him again. It was almost a word of comfort there. Don't worry. Let me go for now. You'll see me again. But she also had a job to do, didn't she? He sent, he sent her to go tell the disciples something. And we'll talk on, on that in just a minute. But from comfort to sorrow. From comfort to sorrow. And that's what happens when we turn away from the empty tomb. Because we turn away from an empty, we turn away from an empty tomb not full of death and fear and confusion and frustration and anger and hate, but we turn from the empty tomb and we behold the risen Savior. And Jesus, despite the weakness of her faith, wouldn't leave her in sorrow. He showed her the sorrow of, the sorrow of death is over. And whatever sorrow fills your heart, if you're in Christ, then you're alive. That doesn't mean you won't ever have sorrow. It doesn't mean tears won't flow. As a matter of fact, God gave us sorrow. He gave us tears. He gave us crying. He gave us weeping as a gift to us to to help us as we grieve. Nothing wrong with healthy sorrow. Mark records that the other disciples were weeping and sorrowful as well. But when, when Mary came and when they received the news that he was alive, it says no one believed No one believed. They were weeping and sorrowful, and they kept on weeping and being sorrowful. Mary was weeping and sorrowful, but she saw Jesus. She believed, and she was comforted. Only if the disciples had believed, they also would have had comfort. As Christians, we weep when a believing loved one has left us to go to heaven, but we have hope. Mary had great love for Jesus, but greater then her love for him was his love for her. Jesus promises comfort, even though for a little while we're grieved by various trials, there's comfort. 
Here's what, uh, here's what King David wrote uh, in the wilderness. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life. Can you say that? My lips will still praise you. If you remember the context of Psalm 63, it's when David says, I, I long for God. My, my, my soul is longing for God as, as, as someone who's in a dry and weary land. David was in a place, he was weary, he was worn out. And he says, God's steadfast love is better than life. What's wearing you down? What's wearing you down? What's the dry and weary land look like for you? The love of Christ is better than life itself. There's still our third change. From captive to conqueror, from sorrow to comfort, and then verses 19 through 23, from fear to courage. Fearful this morning? Notice what Jesus does here. Jesus says, he said, don't cling to me. I haven't ascended to my Father yet. I'll be here for 40 more days. Still time. But he says, go to my brothers. This is the first time Jesus has referred to his disciples as brothers. Why now? Didn't he, doesn't, I mean, he surely, surely he remembers what they were like just a couple nights ago. He didn't say, go tell my betrayers. He didn't say, go tell the ones who abandoned me. He didn't say, go tell the ones who denied me. He didn't say, go tell those sinners. He, said, he, didn't, go tell, he didn't say, go tell those rotten scoundrels. He didn't say, go tell those, 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 fearful, those fearful guys. He elevates them to brothers. More than servants, more than friends, brothers. It's the day after they abandoned him in death. They're locked, literally locked in fear. See, this is, this is meant to grab us at the gut level here. Because we are a part of God's family. And you and I are just like the disciples. And worse, we are part of the family of God. God adopts those who believe. That's Romans chapter 8. God, a couple different times in Romans chapter 8, says that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. It says that, that God, he did not give us a, a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but he has given us the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Again, here's, here's, the, here's being a child of God right up against fear. He did not give us the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but he has given us the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so Jesus comes, he appears right in the middle of the room, and he speaks peace. Remember, this is Sunday evening now, so we're in the, we're in the nighttime. This is when you guys are, where everybody's eating dinner and wrapping things up for the night, and the sun has gone down, it's evening, and they're locked in fear that they're going to somehow get caught and be crucified themselves or executed themselves Jesus comes in and says peace peace these fearful disciples figuring they're going to be blamed for taking the body or or the temple police and the Roman soldiers are, are out looking for them this is a very dangerous moment and it wasn't unreasonable that they're fearful really when you think about it but Jesus appears And he speaks peace. Notice he comes to them. 
He didn't tell his, why didn't he tell his disciples to go, go to the garden? You tell them to come here. You tell them to come to me. Well, again, we see Jesus saying, these are my brothers. I'm going to go to them. I know they're afraid. I know they're fearful. I know their hearts. And I know what they need. And so he goes to them. He goes to them. And it's, it's significant. Did you notice here what happens? It says in, in verse uh, 20, uh, 19, Jesus comes in and he says, peace be with you. And what is the very next thing he does? He shows them his hands in his side. That is very significant and very intentional. Those scars and what those scars represented were the very reason they could have peace. Peace with God and peace with Christ. Those scars showed the disciples that God's wrath had been propitiated. The serpent was crushed. Death was abolished. Life imparted peace with God. And notice also what happens next there. It was after they saw the scars that the disciples rejoiced. I imagine when they first saw Jesus, you know, it's kind of like Joseph and his brothers. Remember in the Old Testament, dad dies and the brothers are like, oh man, what's Joseph going to do to us now? It's like that fearfulness. Jesus, Jesus is saying, peace, peace. And they saw the scars. Those scars meant something. Imagine what went through Peter's mind. I mean, just a couple nights before, Jesus, Peter, remember, if you're here on Friday night, we, we referenced this uh, briefly, but Peter brought down, when it says he, when, when he denied Jesus the third time and it says he cursed, he didn't say swear words. He might have said swear words or bad words or naughty words, maybe. But the idea there of the curse was that he was bringing down the very curse of God on himself. So adamant was he that he did not know Jesus. I bring down the very curse of God on me to swear to you that I don't know Jesus. That's what happened just a few nights before. And it's like Jesus, it's, Jesus settles Peter's fear the same way he calmed Mary. It's almost as if Jesus said, Peter, look, look at my scars. You have no need to fear. The curse of God has been removed from you. I took it. Peter, don't you get it? You don't have to fear. You don't have to worry. I took it. Here's the scars to prove the wrath of God was given to me. They had undeniable proof that men and women can have peace with God. Our fear will lock Jesus out, but his scars remind us that there's no need to fear. So Jesus then tells them, now he doesn't, not only does he say peace, he commissions them. He gives them a task. Go. And this is reminiscent of John 17, 18, what Jesus uh, told them earlier, where he's praying to the Father, and he says, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them. I mean, this is almost pathetic. The disciples were supposed to take Jesus' place in announcing the good news of the gospel. It's pathetic. These guys? Like, these are the guys that are supposed to take Jesus' place on earth to share the gospel? Jesus, maybe you should just hang around a little bit longer, right? Look at me. I'm the one, I'm the one preaching the word. Like, if you only knew, like, are you kidding me? Like, this guy's the best you got? Like, his heart, his mind, his attitude, the way he acts, his sin, 
But Jesus doesn't reach the lost by appearing to them. He reaches the lost through his church. Through the disciples, first of all, and then they pass it down. I mean, this is the privilege and responsibility we have. The way hell-bound men and women will encounter Jesus Christ is through the message the church preaches. And he gives them this object lesson, and there's, there's a lot we could dive into here, but we're not going to for the sake of time. But he gives them this object lesson that eventually they'll receive the Holy Spirit. I don't believe they receive the Holy Spirit at this moment, because that happens later in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 and 2 is the story of the account of, the account of Pentecost there. So Jesus gives, us, gives them this object that he breathes, as if to say, the very Spirit of God is going to come to you, and it's going to indwell you. The Holy Spirit is going to come and indwell your body. It's going to empower you. It's going to give you a gift, and you're going to go and proclaim the message. And he gives them authority. Notice what it says in verse 23. He is not giving them the authority to forgive or not forgive sins. He's given them the authority, verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What he is giving them the authority to do is to declare that anyone who rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ will be condemned. And I stand here before you today on the authority of the word of God, I tell you, if you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are condemned. But if you believe that Jesus died for you and he rose again and he's your savior, you will be forgiven. We announce the message, God provides the miracle. Man, what courage the disciples must have had. This could have turned out so many different ways. Jesus died so that their fears and failures could be turned into courage. The, one, the ones that ran away from the threatening world because of Jesus are now, be call, now being called to run to that same world, proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. We have this privilege, and we have the word of God as our authority, and we go out. We don't offer anyone experiences or entertainment. It's a result. Faith is a result of understanding the word of God. That's a faith that saves. Let's look at the last change Jesus wants to make. And we have Thomas, from doubt to confidence. How would you like to be Thomas? He's living the rest of human history with an adjective in front of his name. Doubting. Or there are probably others we could put in there. I think we learned from John chapter 11 that uh, he was a pessimist. He was a pessimist. In John chapter 11, if you remember that story, Jesus is going to go back to Bethany because Lazarus had died. And just in Jerusalem, which was just, just a short distance away, uh, the Jews had tried to stone Jesus. And so Jesus says, hey, let's go back. And it was, it was Thomas. Here's how, here's how Thomas responds to, to Jesus. He goes, he goes, let us also go. We're going to die. Let's go die with them. Like he already, like his, he was, he, he knew he was going to die at that moment. But don't miss his courage. He was the one who said, let's go. We're going to die. It's a hopeless situation, but let's go. But notice, he wasn't just a pessimist. This account, he, he was, he was alone. He was, maybe we could say a loner. We aren't told exactly why Thomas wasn't with the other disciples, but it was likely he didn't feel like socializing. 
Have you ever felt like not socializing when times are going tough? But that's when we need others the most, isn't it? He didn't feel like socializing. He was so disappointed, so discouraged that Jesus was dead, that this man he had followed was gone, that he didn't want to be around other people. Even though at that moment, that's what he needed the most. But notice, we say doubting Thomas, but it was unbelieving Thomas. He was an unbeliever. He said, I will never believe. Verse 25. Until I see it, until I touch it, I will never believe. And maybe that's some of you this morning. You turn from the empty tomb, and you may say with a clenched fist before God, I will never believe. Be careful what you tell God you won't do. I will never believe until I get proof, until Jesus appears to me. You have this refusal to believe. Now, doubt is a struggle to believe. There's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is a struggle to believe because there's, there's still questions that need to be answered. There's still problems that need to be solved, but you're, you're searching, you're looking. Unbelief is just refusal. Notice he's called, he was also a twin in this passage. He was Thomas called a twin. It's because he had a twin. And who is the twin? We don't know. But you and I sure would fit the bill well. Pessimistic, unbelieving, demanding to see and touch for ourselves, rejectors of Christ. But Jesus comes to him, a sympathetic Savior. He came to Thomas with passion, patient compassion. And Thomas turns into, look at verse 28, last couple verses. He turned into Thomas the believer. We can't share Thomas's sight. We can't touch Jesus, but we can share Thomas's faith. And he gives the highest confession possible in verse 28, where he says, my Lord and my God. That is the highest confession of faith possible, to believe that Jesus is Lord because of his death and resurrection and be- believe that he is God. And God is pleased with those who have never seen him and yet believe. Jesus had an intimate concern for Thomas, and he does for us as well. Unbelief is evil, Hebrews chapter 3. But Christ steps into our doubts, and he steps into our unbelief, and he shows us himself through his word. I want you to notice how personal the resurrection was. Jesus approached specific people, sometimes groups, and he would get, the groups would get larger, kind of as the 40 days rounded off. But he would approach specific people, sometimes individually, but he didn't announce it to the world. Why wasn't he spending those 40 days just traveling all over the place, appearing to the elders and the leaders and the Jews that rejected him, to, to Pilate and the others? He went to Mary, a weak and weary lover of Jesus, and he changed her. He went to the disciples. Locked in fear and uncertainty, and he changed them. He went to Thomas, depressed, pessimistic, discouraged, unbelieving, and he changed him. He went to a few people and changed their lives forever, that they may turn and be proclaimers of how sinners can have peace with God. The crucifixion crushed them, the resurrection surprised them, but together it changed them. Have you been changed? Do you need to change? Is Jesus yours? 
Just the other day, on Friday, we hosted the funeral for a longtime church member, Larry Christie. Pastor Matt had the privilege of officiating the service, and something he said in his, in his opening prayer struck me. Matt read the back of the obituary, and then he said this at the beginning of his prayer. He says, Lord, we know that Larry's life cannot be summed up in just the back page of a pamphlet, but it can be summed up in Christ and him crucified. I love that. If you don't know Jesus, your life will be summed up on the back of a pamphlet. That'll be as good as it gets for you. But if you do know Christ, if you do know Christ, your life can be summed up in him, in him crucified and risen. So what would sum up your life? Are you a captive to sin and death? Are you immersed in sorrow? Are you locked in fear? Are you full of doubt? Well, in Christ, you can be, or if you know Christ, you are a conqueror. You can find comfort. You can find courage and can find confidence. Jesus is alive. Don't, be, don't just be fascinated. Fascinated faith says, Jesus lives. Saving faith says, Jesus lives in me. Which one is it for you? Let's pray. We give you glory, O oh Lord, that you are alive. Lord, I pray that you would raise up those who are dead in their sin. Lord, raise up those who are immersed in sorrow. They're, they're locked in fear. They're full of doubt and uncertainty. Lord, set free the captive and make us conquerors. In Jesus' name, amen.